This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. Now this week saw us release our brand new clothing range. It's our spring range. And what we've done with this collection is we've tried to put together a bunch of garments that you can wear no matter what the weather. We've got a bunch of new t-shirts. These ones I really like. We've got a Berserker Spirit t-shirt and an Ulfadin Spirit t-shirt. And what these are is that they've got a warrior in the middle and then behind the warrior you've got the spirit of the animal that they're embodying. So behind the Berserker you've got a bear and behind the Ulfadin you've got a wolf. Um, alongside that, for those of you who like something a little bit more simple, we've got just a logo t-shirt. So it's our logo on the left-hand side and that comes in a heather neve and a woodland heather. And these t-shirts are 100% organic recycled cotton. Then we've got a new jogging pant which come in the men's and the women's and we've also got a hoodie. So these are all in black with our logo embroidered on them. Again, with the hoodie, we're trying to keep in that theme of keeping things sustainable. So that's made from 85% organic cotton and 15% uh, recycled polyester. And it's um, Global Organic Treaty certified and also Fair Weather Foundation certified. And finally, I think my favorite item from this launch is we've got a brand new 100% cotton jumper. Now, this jumper is absolutely perfect for me. You can wear it on its own or you can layer it up and have a t-shirt under it and throw that on top for that little bit of extra warmth. It's really comfortable, it's really soft. Like I said, it's 100% cotton. Uh, the men's one comes in black and a beautiful olive color. And then we do a women's one, which comes in a lovely navy color as well. So yeah, just pop over to the website and check them out. Don't forget, you get that extra 10% discount off anything store-wide for listening to the podcast and for supporting the podcast. Just use Horns10 at checkout and you can get 10% off anything. Thanks for listening. Let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin. I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. All right, so this time we are joined by Harry Jonsson from the awesome Faroese band Tuir, uh, spelled T-Y-R. Um, I'm doing my best to pronounce it in Faroese, um, but uh, other pronunciations, I guess, would be Tyr or Tyr. Um, and yeah, uh, welcome, Harry. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for spending the taking the time out of your day to join us. Horribly busy day it was, doing nothing <laughs> again <laughs> under the lockdown. No, I tried to get some work done here. I have my home studio here in my bedroom and do a bit of work, but it's nice to see some people every now and then. Absolutely. We've, we, we've just started relaxing things in England and you can now kind of meet people and go to the pub outside and now go to the gym again. So it's getting a little bit back to normal. Yeah, I can imagine Brits get uh, either homicidal or suicidal when once if pubs are closed for too long. <laughs> <laughs> you you know them too well. Mm. I know a few. <laughs> so yeah, no. Let let's start out talking about the band. So as I read, I, I guess it's it's classed as Faroese folk metal. Am I? Is that right? Is that a... yes, yes. Folk, Viking, pagan. I suppose focus is the most uh, common term, and in my estimation, the most accurate. Um, 
it's not really up to us what we call it. And I don't usually get involved in that uh, because I had no idea there was such a thing as folk metal when we started. All we did was combine folk melodies and, and Faroese and Nordic tradition with heavy metal. Um, we found out years later, it's called folk metal, <laughs> much to our <laughs> surprise. But we do what we do and, and other people come up with the names for it. I suppose mostly journalists and uh, record labels uh, have, have the need to, to call it something. When did you guys actually start out? Like, was that late 90s or early 2000s? I can't remember. Like, I, I remember uh, like getting deep into uh, some of your albums in the early 2000s, but um not entirely sure when you started. We started in early 1998, uh, in January, I think. And um, it took us some time to get going. I was studying, I wasn't going to be a professional musician. I was studying linguistics at the time and I wanted to play music on the side. But I found out that I spent all my time playing music and no time doing my uh, homework. <laughs> so I, I was sometime, somewhere in my mid twenties when I decided to become a professional rock star. It's quite late to to figure that out. Uh, in two thousand and two, I think we released our first album, January. So uh, we, I guess you can say we slowly got started over that period of, of four years, ninety eight to twenty two, two thousand two. Okay, yeah, that makes that makes sense. That uh, that seems to correlate pretty much with when I I sort of discovered. Uh, you guys out there I've been a fan ever since so uh it's a uh, actually quite an honor to be able to sit here and chat with you about all of this thanks i'm very glad to very glad to hear that yeah no it's uh i'm i'm gonna say i'm a i'm a new fan i've uh recently fine too. and i'm uh no i'm having fun I've, I've had fun all day listening to in my, in my workshop going back through the catalog and enjoying your your music it's it's definitely up my street i i am uh, looking forward to listening to some more of it as well i'm very very glad to hear that one of the things that i i'd say is that uh you know for a heavy metal fan um in the early 2000s uh discovering a band like two uh one of the first things, and also as Scandinavian heavy metal fans, one of the first things I, of course, like realized, so, holy shit, here's a band that actually like incorporates old material, folk material that that we know from, you know, our general culture in quite a uh, different way than, uh, than, than what you've seen through the 90s and, and 80s. Like, you know, if there's anything Scandinavian in, in, you know, 80s heavy metal or 90s heavy metal, it's sort of like that, like Iron Maiden reference to Vikings or something like that. So so what what's inspired you guys to like be like, let's do this. Let's let's take these old folk songs and 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 uh, reconfigure them into heavy metal. Well, well first, I, I had an interest in music uh, uh Faroese folk music since I was uh, very little and uh, I had an interest in, in Nordic mythology since I was about 10 or 11 years old we learned about it in school and uh, I had a deep fascination for it and I still have uh, when I was 14 I got into heavy metal uh, the first heavy metal band I listened to was Motley Crue and then I got to to other you know Iron Maiden uh, Scandinavian bands like Europe, uh, TNT, and um, I, I wanted to play regular you know, hard rock, heavy metal uh, to begin with. But then 
um, I heard a Danish band, not not a band, a project of of a guy called Per Frost from the Danish band uh, Gnags. They don't play. They play, I suppose, pop rock, folky uh, touch. But but he he made a song for um, for Faroes. No, for Danish TV, a show that was aired in the Faroes, and he combined a Faroese traditional with, with some um, rock, hard rock. Uh, elements and and uh, this was a massive hit in the pharaohs for months if not a year and that that must have been in 97 and in 98 uh, i formed the band based on that very idea i thought that this is an incredible idea i should try it myself and i i really didn't think it would go that well so only one song on our first album is really made in this way or Lancia. The rest are have some references to to uh, Nordic mythology or or some uh, ins- inspirations from Faroese melodies, traditional melodies. Um, but the song "Armelanche," um, which is more of a simple adaptation of a Faroese folk song into heavy metal, was by far the most popular. Is to this day one of our most popular songs, and um, I saw you know that might be the way to go. I, I thought I I really just wanted to make one. A small crack at it. I had no clue it would be this uh, popular or, or you know, powerful, but it was. And so we've sort of done the same thing ever since. On every album, we've made eight albums now. There are, you know, two or three, I suppose on average, between two and three songs on each album made in this way, simply taking a Scandinavian folk song, mostly Faroese, but also Danish, Norwegian, and, and Icelandic, and putting them into heavy metal mode. Um, so yeah, my, my childhood interests of of Faroese um, uh, traditional music, uh, Nordic mythology, and then heavy metal, and and finally Per Frost, the Danish musician, put the things sort of together for me, and and that's how how the whole thing came about. Cool, cool. That's uh, that's kind of that's kind of great to hear that it's actually a musician from my hometown <laughs> who inspired that. that. There's some very nice bands from from Denmark. Some yeah. Extraordinary bands. I listened to a lot of Danish music when I was young. <laughs> so one thing I, I want to ask about is the Faroe Islands as a whole. And I feel like it's something that probably gets overlooked when it comes to speaking about Scandinavia and the Viking Age and Nordic mythology and all this kind of stuff. Um, how deeply is it rooted in like Faroese culture? Um the culture in the Faroes is, I would say, one hundred percent Nordic, Scandinavian, uh, Norwegian, mostly, and and later a bit Danish, Danified, and and but it's it's a completely modern country now. It's as modern as any part of Scandinavia. Um, most people, the knowledge of of uh, Nordic <clears throat> and Faroese tradition is relatively high in the Faroes compared to. Um, I would say Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, May- maybe not Iceland, but everyone in the Faroes knows about traditional ballads, and they are much more uh, present in modern society. Uh, whereas if you go to Denmark and and you want to uh, know some, you know, ancient medieval traditional ballads, you really have to go to nerds and experts. Whereas in the Faroes, it is much more uh, a common um, knowledge thing. I. Sp- 
my, I've lived in Denmark for, for more than seven years, so I have a good feeling for this. Uh, I, I suppose the same is is valid for Sweden and, and Norway. Um, and, but I think in Iceland, they, they are they have a great pride in it as well, and they have, have some knowledge of their own um, ancient uh, war medieval history. I mean, without I don't want to I don't want to come across as rude, I guess, but but I, I'm incredibly I guess ignorant to the Faroe Islands, which is why I want to try and learn more about it. Um, obviously, it's as my knowledge goes, it's an island off very way 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 off the north of Scotland. Um, but I guess other than that, it's not something that I that I know much about. So I guess I. I I want to start at the beginning of where how how it started how you know I guess the whole history or as much as we can we can go okay, through so, of its importance whether so that's best for Matthias we go back to Greenwood Campan and then go from there because I'm sure I'm not I'm I'm sure I'm not the only person who really has very unless you're really I guess deep into this in, in kind of where Matthias is and or from from there I I I don't want to be rude but I assume that maybe most people kind of, like say, overlook it, which is quite sad. So the pharaohs were settled in the early to mid-800s, uh, we think, at, at the moment, by Norwegian um, uh, settlers. There may have been some uh, Irish or Scottish monks uh, before, uh, probably there were, um, but they ma- made no lasting uh, impact on the country. Um, and uh, in, in the Icelandic sagas, Grimur Kampan is mentioned as the first settler. Um, it's, it's hard to know how accurate that is. Um, but it's interesting. Grimur is, is, is a Norwegian or Nordic name, and Kampan is a Celtic nickname, meaning limp, as, a, as, if, as in he had a limp. Um, so the, the speculation is that they, uh, the Norwegians first settled in, in the British Isles to the north, um, in, in Shetland, the Orkneys, uh, the Hebrides, and around there. And from there, it's much easier to find the pharaohs than directly from Norway. So, uh, and, and uh, genetic studies on, on the mitochondrial DNA show that the, the female um, DNA in the pharaohs is about 80% Celtic, whereas the male is 85% uh, Nordic. So, and, and here's an interesting point. In Shetland and the Orkneys, the uh, Norwegian DNA in both male and female is uh, around 80%. Uh, so that means th- the married men who came from Norway and had uh, settled in, in uh, uh, North Scotland where, where they came, whereas the unmarried men who married local women had to move which is kind of understandable. <laughs> uh, they pr- probably lower rank, and, and they moved to the Faroes into Iceland. Um, so uh, make of that what you will, but uh, at least it shows you that the Vikings who came to Scotland were not drunk, for, because uh, if they were, they would have taken the ugly women too, and the Faroes women are, are <laughs> notoriously attractive. <laughs> 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 so, how how big is the Faroe Island? About like the Shetlands. Um, uh, the Shetlands are, uh, I, I suppose, a hundred islands, whereas the Faroes are uh, about eighteen islands, sixteen of which are inhabited. 
um, 1,400 square kilometers, I believe, <clears throat> and <clears throat> much more rugged terrain than, than uh, the Shetlands, for example, and northern Scotland, uh, mostly uh, vertical cliffs facing the ocean, and, and in between the islands and the fjords, you, you find a bit more hospitable terrain. <clears throat> 53,000 people at the moment. That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> uh, I feel so and, incredibly and, rude, <laughs> not like having such limited knowledge. No. But I... <laughs> We're very used to it from the fires, nobody knowing anything about it. <clears throat> at, at least uh, you didn't uh, confuse it for something from Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm not, I don't think I'm that bad. <laughs> so far, so good. Um, yeah, 53,000 people and, and growing uh, fast. Um, Is that because of the beautiful women? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I, th I think mostly good uh, financial circumstances, you know, high standard of living, um, mm -hmm. good opportunities for young people for studying, working, and um, it's hard yeah. to say. I'm not no. a... <laughs> I mean... I, I'm not... I, I'm I, not uh, I, imagine it's yeah, well, very, I imagine it's very cold up there. <laughs> not that cold. Uh, like Scotland, um, you know, it, it's not like... Siberia or, or, or what have you, or Greenland. We're in the middle of the Gulf Current and it goes you know, right past the UK up to, to northern Norway and stops around there, Lofoten. And that is the um, most anomalously warm area on the planet, uh, okay. Lofoten. And, and we, we are you know, one step in front of them even. So if you go to the, to the same uh, latitude, or it's longitude, I always mix it up, same northernness, in, in mainland Canada or, or, or Russia, you have much, much colder areas that, than what you, what you find in the North Atlantic. So the other day, I was just talking to, uh, we, we have a podcast called The Tearcast, and I was talking to uh, our bass player who, who, who lives there, and it was minus seven degrees a couple of days ago, which is quite, quite cold for the pharaohs. Usually it's between minus, I would say zero, minus two, then it's really cold up to plus 10 or 15 and stays between there and then yeah, it rains a, and a lot of wind and this is the same here in colorado i mean i we're at the like a latitude that is similar to north africa um and like southern to mid spain depending on where you are in in in, in colorado and i mean we just had a blizzard and there's like snow everywhere and it's it's kind of cold so and, and that's of course the the inland climate um the uh we don't have the benefit of any any gulf streams unfortunately mm. yes so the the uh huge land masses cause, cause uh extreme climates and if you're in the middle of the ocean you get a lot of rain but you get stable temperature and we're just fortunate that the ocean moves the temperature north um but but Colorado has quite some altitude, doesn't it? Oh yeah, I uh, I am close to actually three kilometers uh, up uh, <laughs> in the air right now yeah. compared to like, uh, the Faroe <laughs> Islands. The highest highest point in the Faroes is eight hundred and eighty meters. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very small country, so it's still very steep, but uh, but the altitude, I suppose, counts for something with the temperature. Mm -hmm. That that's true. Yeah, oh, the, actually, so uh, Boulder, where I work. Um, uh, you know, when I when I used to commute, that's not a thing uh, with all the Corona stuff right now. But um, uh, last year, for instance, I would, would be at this time of year, I'd be commuting between uh, uh, basically winter 
and and spring so like down there because it's so much lower altitude it's like nice and warm and like the mm. <laughs> green leaves are coming out and all that stuff but up here it's still like basically a winter wasteland <laughs> so how how active would have the Faroe Islands have been during the Viking Age? Did it have like some sort of strategical benefit? As it seems quite out of the way compared to everything else, I guess, other than, I guess, Iceland. It's hard to say. There was definitely some activity, but the Icelandic sagas mentioned the Faroes. Uh, there's one saga of the Faroe Islanders taken from the Flatea Boke. It might, might have existed before that as a separate saga. It tells the story from, from uh, late 900s to, to uh, 10,030, no, rubbish, 1035. And um, it's like all Icelandic sagas, at least 50% uh, uh, fiction. So, but it may reflect the, the uh, circumstances. Uh, around that time so there were you know political pullings back and forth against the norwegian king uh, in favor of the norwegian king and so on and so forth um and there have been some excavations in the pharaohs showing that um on on the, the uh, village of santer that there was some very uh, high uh, activity in in uh, in the in the fishing fishing industry and production of uh, you know, you know, natural resources. And I believe the biggest hoard found in the Nordic countries has been found there, a hoard, a hoard of gold coins or whatever kind of coins. They're still excavating. Um, they ran out of money, as I suppose most uh, archaeologists do, and they put everything back on the soil, back on top of their excavation and waited for, for the next grant and they've been waiting for years now it's i understand it's hard to get money for for these things there are a few places in the pharaohs that need excavation that would definitely reveal something about viking age history but well my sympathy goes out to all, everyone who aspires to make a career as an archaeologist yeah that's that's a that's a real real issue um uh you know there are so many places that uh, could really illuminate a lot of uh, Viking Age history and medieval history as well. Um, in the Faroe Islands, in, in uh, Iceland as well, um, and uh, ooh, Greenland needs needs a lot more digging around yes, too. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Denmark is, is uh, I think, one of the best excavated places in, in the entire Nordic region. It's, it's very easy. It's quite a flat country. You, you don't have any of those natural obstacles and some things have been very very well preserved and and um, we could have some some more of that in the pharaohs so i i suppose we have to say for the most part of of uh, pharaoh's medieval history we simply don't know um no books written in the pharaohs a few letters uh, preserved from late 1200s maybe to um, 1500s you know personal letters of of um, finance and and other important relations is it is it possible that it was just used as a a fishing base for I guess um, expen expensive or sought after items like like whaling um, and obviously for 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 that kind of thing and then shipped back to like mainland Scandinavia. There there are some as far as I remember the finds in Sundoy. Um, there's actually evidence of a broad, very like. Uh, far-stretched uh, 
trade network uh, that goes through the Faroe Islands as well. So uh, I think um, I, I'm like very iffy on it at this point because it's like ages ago since I read that article on the excavation. But I think that uh, that we we do see connections to the Mediterranean as well. So um, so there's there's uh, uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, assuming that uh, that there was at least like one center, if not more. Uh, of uh, r relatively rich uh, uh, magnates um, uh, in the Faroe Islands. Um, yeah, th there must have been at least one, uh, probably more, because uh, there are some some nice places, some well protected, and and um, uh, and as you said, the, the natural resources must have been incredible when first they arrived. Uh, you know, sheep ha has been the, the uh, general commodity in the Faroes throughout. It, it's been a, a custom up until this day to, to um, take your sheep out to very difficult areas to access and you leave them there for the winter and you and, and you uh, take them uh, rubbish, you leave them there for the summer and you go back to pick them up in the autumn and, and slaughter them. And, and uh, I, my thought is it might have been a practice already from, from the closest islands to, to uh, the pharaohs, say northern Scotland or Shetland, or even directly from Norway, which I think is a bit less likely, that, that you would simply go there in the spring, leave some sheep there for for the summer and pick them up in the autumn. And, and then, you know, they have, have access to, to uh, incredible amounts of, of uh, natural food. Mm -hmm. And th that may have been the start of it. That's just my speculation. But whatever it was, the sh uh, people have found out sheep are the thing to have in the pharaohs and it is okay. to, to this day <laughs> and they're off the name pharaohs it means sheep islands pharaohs okay i mean sheep seem to be able to survive anywhere they are some tough tough little things they do and of course over a thousand over a thousand years they evolved to survive in specifically that climate so mm -hmm. yeah absolutely they, they can handle it oh for sure um Mateus, how how valuable were things like whales, I guess, in the Viking Age, and would you have, would they have gone hunting for whales? So, so there's um, there's not a lot of uh, literary descriptions of hunting whale. Uh, there's usually the, the 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 typical description is the beached whale, okay, uh, in like the Icelandic sagas and, and such things. But there is a emerging theory. It's actually quite recent that. A lot of the migration across the North Atlantic, like to the Faroes and then onto the to Iceland and into Greenland and then even further up north in Greenland, um, it was based off of the pursuit of walrus. Um, we know that there was a walrus population in Iceland that was completely killed off uh, by the first uh, uh, settlers there. Mm -hmm. They might not even have been settlers, they might have been seasonal hunters. Because walrus was such a pre precious commodity, um, you could use the entire animal for okay. so many different things. And especially, of course, the tusk is ivory. And that's one of the main, main uh, uh, luxury items that would come from the North Atlantic uh, into the European markets. And mm -hmm. like basically, Bergen would be the center for this. That, that's where it would all be shipped to. And then it would uh, then be dispersed from there through, throughout of Europe. Um, we can see, so if we go to Greenland, uh, we can see that Greenland uh, starts deteriorating once there doesn't seem to be much reason for trade with Greenland any longer. 
and that's probably at the time where the, the the those hunters in Greenland they have to go farther and farther north to to find the walrus. We know that they were um, they were going far beyond the uh, the Arctic Circle in Greenland when they were uh, hunting for walrus in in the 1200s, and um, and that simply probably just wasn't sustainable any longer. And so what happens in Greenland is that it, it, from the 1200s, that's when the population peaks. And then from then on, it just starts dwindling from there. People move back to Iceland, for instance. And then we don't know what happens to the rest of the population, like in the 1400s. There are like, you know, theories of, of all kinds of like what. Is happened. there an estimation of how big the Norse population was there when it was at, at the highest? Yeah, I think it's around 2000. Which is a considerable population in 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 Kalsø, uh and and that area in the southern parts, uh, known as Östervik, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Vesterbygd, which is farther north, uh, not far from modern day Nuuk, um, the capital of Greenland, uh, it had uh, considerably fewer farms, so so the population w- would have probably been in the hundreds. Um, but in the southern parts, yeah, um, we would get close to um, the thousands there, and and yeah, I mean there, there there was a lively interaction between like it's just from Norway to to Greenland and in this in this whole area, uh, back and forth all the time. The Faroe Islands were a, a stopping point for uh, for the boats going uh, back and forth between Greenland as well, uh, between Greenland and Norway. So so that's that must have been um, you know. Uh, Quite important um, the the walrus trade in general, um, mm-hmm. and then also because like you can use the hides for uh, rope making and especially and that's that's one of the uh, that was a very important uh, part of it. So that means that you know based off of all of that, uh, the North Atlantic would be supplying some vital resources to especially Norway, but also the rest of uh, Scandinavia in in in, in different ways. Um, and I assume also Scotland and 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 uh, and England uh, for that matter. So would would or could the Faroe Islands have been used as a, a stopping point from Iceland back to say Norway, Denmark? Is it on the route or is it too high? So so the thing is, no, it, it it's directly on the way. Okay, yeah, I would say. it is it is directly on the way. But the thing is, though, that there is a uh, 13th century description of how you get to Greenland. Uh, so Kvarf in the southern part of Greenland, uh, how you get there, uh, there from Bergen. And actually that description mentions nothing about stopping in the Faroe Islands or in Iceland. It, it actually says that you have to pass the Faroe Islands so that you can see the um, the level of the water like halfway up the cliffs. So that that's sort of like a, you know, a perception uh, aspect, right? Um and then it also talks about like sailing past Iceland, where you only like notice birds and and whales and so, so 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 that actually presumes that you're not stopping at all. But I don't think that that's how you would do it in the beginning. Absolutely. No, not. <laughs> I guess as as ships get better and navigation. That, gets that better. sounds like for for the advanced uh, sailors. Yeah, absolutely. So that would be trade boat that keeps going back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, would the would the Faroe would the Faroe Islands have had permanent inhabitants 
who just stopped there, stayed there, and that was it. Always it kind of passing through. That 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 is the idea. Since uh, about eighty eight hundred and fifty, yes, that there has been permanent settlement. I feel like I'm learning loads. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I say. I feel so. I, I I almost feel embarrassed because it's one of those islands that I know is there and it's something you've heard of, but you should know. We all should probably know a little bit more about. I mean, one thing you can say about the Faroe Islands in terms of like uh, the international uh, community that it belongs to, right, is that it belongs to uh, the North Atlantic proper as a as a as a uh, ethnic and linguistic community, just like the Orkneys and Shetland would, Western Norway and Iceland as well, and then also Greenland uh, um, um, by virtue of the settlers that went there. And and this is where we would have seen um, alliances, uh, power interests and so on be directed towards these other islands and that Norwegian coast primarily. Um, and that's also why you see then uh, sometime after 1262, um, the Faroe Islands are then basically incorporated into the Norwegian kingdom. Um, in 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 some like very not really illuminated way, <laughs> to be honest. Like we know how it goes in Iceland, but it's very difficult to say like what actually happens with Greenland, what happens with the Faroes. So I don't know if here yeah. something to say. No, about. no, I, I'm afraid that's a blank uh page in the history book um iceland is very well described how it happened and why it happened i guess we just have to assume something similar happened in the pharaohs that there was a a breakdown of society somehow and and uh, whoever tried to hold on to power wasn't able to to run it effectively or whatever happened and they went the same way as as iceland is is the faroe island still connected with norway or is it its own no no here's what happened Sweden this always took seems to be over Denmark and okay. Norway. Then uh, Sweden, uh, Norway broke free and took over Denmark. No, and no, 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 Sweden. you're getting it all. And this all, <laughs> happened, this all happened like 10 it's, times. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a roll of the dice. Once, <laughs> once uh, the uh, Kill Treaty happens in 1814, it just so happens the pharaohs were uh, part of the Kingdom of Denmark. Yeah. Yeah, so so from six from twelve sixty two, we see uh, all the North Atlantic uh, um, uh, countries, so Faroe Islands, uh, Orkney, Shetland, Iceland, and Greenland, basically being uh, uh, like taken by Norway. So Norway creates like this North Atlantic uh, empire. Then the Norwegian king happens to marry a Danish princess in in the thirteen eighties. And and then the Norwegian king happens to die, and that Danish princess then is like, well, now I'm I'm queen of uh, of all of it. That was Queen Margaret exactly. the first. Um, and then uh, what we see is the establishment of the Kalmar Union, and uh, that also included Sweden for about a hundred years. Then the Swedes were got pretty tired of that, but that's also because the Danes did their typical bullshit of decapitating the entire nobility of Sweden. You know, all of those things kind of pisses people off when you do that kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and that's that's when we then have like these like 
400 years of like rivalry between like a Swedish empire and a Danish empire. And that's when we get to the Kiel Treaty in, in 1814, as you said, where basically Sweden is like, well, we'll take Norway, snatch. And, and then they're like, but we don't care about the, those North Atlantic colonies. So Denmark just keep those. And that's how we ended up in this situation. And, and very interestingly, uh, the Shetland and Orkneys could have, could have gone with the Faroes, but they stayed with uh, England or, or Scotland. Yeah. I'm not sure what, what it was back then. Probably England. To <laughs> it was refreshing not hearing the English be the bad guys for, for once in that. In that explanation, <laughs> Matthias. No, no, in Scandinavia, it's usually the Danes. We're, we're the bad guys out there. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I feel like nah. we've. Oh, I, <laughs> I feel like we we've earned the moniker of being the bad guys. <laughs> uh, there's. I, I'm very not to pick on the English, but if you look at how things went <laughs> culturally in the Shetlands and the Orkneys compared to how they went in the Faroes, I would say Danes treat their colonies a lot better than many many other <laughs> colonizers. <laughs> I, uh, you, so. I, I wouldn't disagree with you either. So is the Faroe Islands part a Treaty of Denmark now? Is that is that what we got to? It's a self-governing part of the Kingdom of Denmark. Okay, a bit a bit like Scotland to England, but with a mm-hmm. bit more freedom than that. More, more self-determination. Uh, we okay. have our own parliament. We make our own laws on, and we've taken over I, almost everything. Um, we don't have our own uh, citizenship. We don't have our own uh, military. Mm-hmm. Um, most other things are, are made and governed and uh, legislated from the pharaohs. Okay, perfect. Um, the last, the last thing on the pharaohs I wanted to ask about was the style of folk music that I'm not going to be able to pronounce. It begins with a K. Um, because I know, Matthias, when we spoke to Sol a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about how there is very little evidence to suggest music in the Viking Age. Obviously, they would have had some form, but it's hard to kind of nail anything down. And I, I wanted to know how far that goes back with that Faroese folk music and how far that goes back and if that can have any help on deciding what they did or didn't do in the Viking Age and the rest of Scandinavia, I guess. Well, it's very hard to find uh, evidence for melodies. You know, they didn't write them down. I suppose mm-hmm. the earliest melody that's written down in the north is, is a Danish runestone. And precisely how to read that is, is even difficult. But I suppose that the lines are the harp strings. So depending on you tune your harp, then, of course, it's hard to see the melody from that and uh, mm-hmm. the rhythm of the melody. Um, however, it is, I think, relatively easy to see if a melody is older than what we call modern music, I suppose the 1600s around there. Um, you, you can see if someone who had a theoretical understanding of music has, has had, an, had a hand in it or not, uh, is my understanding of it at least. And uh, most Faroese melodies, uh, of a very large share of them are older than that. Now, this, some of the subjects of the, the ballads, they're called kvaya, by the way, uh, are from... Uh, uh, Icelandic sagas and some of them concerning uh, Faroese relations, but very few of them, uh, disappointingly. Um, some of them are obviously composed directly out of the sagas. Or the person who composed these ballads has been either had good knowledge of or has been reading directly from a saga. And um, some are uh, original, uh, 
and some even original about uh, mythological subjects. So there might have been some mythological uh, information preserved only in, in Farrah's ballads, uh, particularly about Loki. Um, the, the tradition of, of uh, the specific chain dance that you do with this is not originally Nordic even. It comes from uh, the French court around 1200, the start of the 1200s, and it was popularized throughout uh, Europe and then went out of fashion everywhere except in the pharaohs. Um, it's, so it's not necessarily connected to, to the stories uh, in, in the ballads or, or the, the melodies. I suspect some of the melodies are much older and the, some of the stories are obviously much older, but it's very hard to determine the uh, lineage and age of, of a melody, if not impossible. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like one of those things that we we all know, can probably agree that they will have played music during the Viking Age, but without being able to prove it, you always get those odd people who will be like, oh, well, if you can't prove it, it didn't happen. Uh, yeah, well, they, they, they didn't regard musicians as, you know, it was just below slaves, I suppose. Uh, poets were very high, highly regarded. Musicians get get no love in the sagas. That's true. Yeah, there's there's, there's something about that. Like the, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, they they're like music. Uh, who cares? But the poetry, yeah, well, that's a very yeah, good point. Up there, up there with the heroic warriors are, are the poets, and and uh, music is hardly ever mentioned. <clears throat> It, it is mentioned to a high degree in, in the Faris ballads, but in the Icelandic sagas, I, I, I've read a few of them. I can't remember one reference to music. Yeah, that's, that's right. It, it's not definitely not common. I, I can't remember no. any either. Um, yeah, and it's actually quite interesting to consider that, um, that the ballad tradition has its origin in the French court, um, uh, it, especially because this... It seems like it's it's something that is it catches on in the North Atlantic and uh, at the Norwegian king's court in particular, as as like a, a a cultural element. This is this is something that we really like. Um, we're not seeing, as far as I remember, the same attitude in like Eastern Scandinavia, like in Denmark and in Sweden. It's it actually seems like uh, Norway and the North Atlantic at this time is, is like culturally more progressive. Like more interested in what is happening in the European scene than 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 the Danes and the Swedes. They're, they're I don't know what they're running around and doing actually. <laughs> could could be. I did. I didn't think about that that way. Um, but to be precise, it, it's the chain dance tradition that that came came from France. I I suppose most of the melodies and and stories were all, were already in the north. Uh, although some may have come from from further south, uh, definitely. Well, there's actually most of the uh, so the, the saga literature about like Sigurd the Dragon Slayer and, and so on is written on a, a on a on a like a narrative schema that has been uh, uh, adapted from the courtly romances that were being told and and written in uh, in France at the time. So of so course, of course. There's like this borrowing of, of like the literary tradition that seems to be very progressive in, in the North Atlantic. And, and it's not 
is not working out the same way in the in the eastern parts. Like if you look at Saxo as a as a historian, how he's writing, um, he seems much more like uh, directed towards Germany um, in in style and everything as well. So uh, so there's something to be said for for that, which is I just find incredibly fascinating because it it tells you something about like cultural directions and uh, and uh, and and how how people are are orientated in general. When it, when it comes to these things um but um, it's a hot mess it is a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> perfect yeah the next thing i want to speak about is is why I, you know i messaged you earlier to say that i i like the fact that you guys speak so openly against white supremacy and i imagine it's something that has been linked to to you guys quite often especially i think with the name tia using that rune unfortunately especially in recent years it seems to have attracted a negative connotation um so yeah i i really like your willingness to be kind of fuck you fuck off we don't want you and we don't want anything to do with with us whereas i feel or i would certainly appreciate more bands in this in this space to do that um i think it would be beneficial to us all if they did but i understand that not everybody wants to necessarily take that route well, to, to begin with, it's never been a big problem for us. It's only come up on, on a very few occasions. I suppose I could count that on one hand. But whenever it does, I, I feel the need to, you know, hammer down on it as heavily as I can. And um, I can think of three episodes right now. There may have been a, one or two more, but uh, once in, in Germany, we were accused by a... a Berlin uh, organization of, of being um, fascist and, and uh, right-wing extremists. Mm -hmm. And that happened in 2008 or nine. And it was the reason we made the YouTube page. And that was to put a, up a video denouncing that claim. We tried all of us repeatedly to contact the, the person who runs this organization to explain what we thought was a great misunderstanding, but he had no interest in communicating with us. Um, so later, I, I wrote the song "Shadow of the Swastika" as, as a, clarifying my position. Um, we were once booked at a venue. This was also in Berlin. Uh, that we found out later was, was um, some biker gang, right wing Nazi extremists were running this venue. We had no clue. Our booker had no clue. Our booker was in Austria, and you know, didn't meet these people personally. Uh, we played at this venue and. Uh, some of our some German people, our fans were there, and they could see obviously this was uh, not the right place for us to play. They told us we told the booker to put this venue on the blacklist immediately. It turns out that they had been uh, closed down by Berlin authorities earlier they This venue was called Dark Side. They had earlier been called Asgard and um, change the name to, to uh, be able to, to open it again. And they uh, played or attracted and, and tried to cultivate a, a right-wing extremist um, uh, you know, environment. Of course, we want no part of that. Uh, I'm very sorry that happened, but uh, it was not, not, not a thing we could have, have prevented and, and we wouldn't have played there if we, if we knew. Um, sometime later, there was some request from Norway to make sure we weren't 
right-wing extrem- extremists. I don't remember what those were, very un, uh, undramatic at least. So this is not a big problem for us, ha- hasn't been, and I will loudly and clearly denounce any right-wing extremist uh, people who think we represent their their uh, values. And uh, if, if you can read the lyrics of the song Shadow of the Swastika, you'd, I think it would be pretty clear to anyone that we do not support any um, race-based supremacy ideology. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Oh, for sure. I think I think the song definitely makes it clear. But I, I, I guess rudely. I, well, sometimes things need saying saying clear, clearly. Those are words you apply when you denounce uh, Nazism. Yes, yeah, for sure. <laughs> No, oh, I uh, I very much appreciate that too. Like I, I think it's important. Um, and and yeah, no, I, I'm also glad to hear that it's not such a big problem for you as a band. Um, obviously, what happens out in the, you know, the 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 fan base and you know the general like conversations everywhere is another uh, is another deal. Um, there, there's a lot of that going around. We've also seen here in North America, we've seen campaigns against certain bands um, for different reasons. Yeah, I, I, I think for me, I was on my, I'd say my main concern, but I was thinking that certainly in recent years, I've seen the the tear room associated with quite a few shitty groups. And I know, I think, was it the Icelandic ski team winter olympic team or the norwegian one who no norwegian was in norwegian that took quite a lot of flack for having that on there um they, i think they had like some sweaters made for the for the olympics exactly. and they had the, the, the that rune on there and they were getting called racist and all that kind of stuff so i, I kind of I, I guess i wondered whether that had ever come towards you in that same sense of of, of using that it's certainly been you know the band have been named that the the first uh, instance uh, that happened in Berlin was about the use of runes. Yes, um, mm-hmm. that was the only time that was a precise issue. Um, n- not not a big issue for us ever since. That's honestly, yeah, that's I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. It, it seems especially especially nowadays that people just try to find these issues with everything and then go gun-ho and attack without actually doing any real research into it exactly exactly so it's it's i'm i'm very much glad to hear that you haven't had that kind of uh attention Matthias, you wanted to talk about sea shepherd oh yeah so i mean (laughs) you've you've been quite uh vocal about uh the subject of the sea shepherd and just for those who don't know what the sea, sea shepherd is it's basically like to set up uh similar to Greenpeace, um, but I guess more radical in their approach to uh what they do. And um so generally what we can say is that they, you know, harass uh, uh whalers um and and other you know fishers and agents on the sea that are deemed uh unwelcome by them and not you know necessarily by 
international standards or or agreements or, or laws for that matter um and uh and yeah they've been uh, a particular nuisance to the faroe islands uh, for quite some time because of your you know traditional whaling in in the faroe islands and just to give people a background information on that uh, in, in the north atlantic people still eat whale and this is uh, both internationally culturally sanctioned and politically sanctioned as well it's a stable part of the diet i've personally eaten a lot of whale uh, as a child in Greenland, for instance. So um, I, I have no hangups there uh, myself. And it's not a, 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 it's not a, a situation where, you know, these uh, this hunting practices and whaling practices are um, damaging populations either. It's very sustainable. So that's the elevator talk. And I'll give it over to Harry and uh, hear what you have to say about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very transparent to anyone who grew up with this that what the uh, whaling organization Sea Shepherd is saying is absolute nonsense, and they are doing it to make money. Uh, I think Paul Watson figured out in the late seventies when he left uh, the, the Greenpeace organization. He was kicked out actually for uh, being being too violent. Um, and but before that, when they were um, protesting against nuclear tests in, in um, Canada, I believe. They figured out that if they used pictures of people it, wearing Greenpeace uh, uh, logos standing between the beautiful environment and the evil uh, nuclear testers, they would get much, much more donations mm -hmm. th than by simply an announcing uh, or running ads in text or whatever. And they pursued that. Uh, that's he's a one-trick pony. He figured this out. You need a picture of a, a person who is wearing Sea Shepherd um, logos standing between the, these nice whales and the evil uh, whalers. Mm -hmm. That's how he makes his money, and it's it's an outrage-driven scam, money scam. Um, he he's been harassing the pharaohs since the mid. 1980s and it is simply impossible to be involved in a matter for so long and not know the facts so uh, he, he he's lying when he when he says for example that the whale is not eaten is simply thrown away and it's killed for fun and it's um what does he call it um coming of age ritual <clears throat> he knows these things are not true but all he has to do is outrage anywhere from i suppose five to ten percent of his viewers enough to press the donation button and that is what has been driving this entire thing since the late 70s it's an outrage driven money scam and anyone with direct access to and knowledge of whaling and and whale meat consumption can see that he's lying and that he knows he's lying and he's lying lying for a living mm. the problem is i think with this kind of situation is that the the claim seems to always travel further than the rebuttal that comes after. So, mm -hmm. you know, he'll he'll make the claim and it'll reach however many thousands of people and then the truth might reach a small percentage of that. True, true. Outrage goes very far, very fast. A calm, clear-minded, scientific rebuttal, you know, doesn't get out the door. No, it doesn't, yeah. no. because he just doesn't and have the, the clickbaity way of getting hold of people's emotions. Well, it's also because, you know, people have 
gotten the, the the notion of like the 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 whale as this very special animal like hammered into their heads since like sometime in the middle of the the 20th century right that so 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 the the it is seen as a moral failure if you're like you know getting sustenance from whales uh, by some people, especially in urban environments. It's the same with the seal that has been also like promoted as, as this, this poor little animal that is, that is then like brutally beaten with clubs, right? That's, that's like this, this seventies uh, narrative about, you know, a very distinct uh, hunting practice in Labrador in Canada mm-hmm. and nowhere else. Again, we talked about this before. The seal, you know, is plentiful in 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 the Arctic area, and there are very few hunters. But those hunters, they are now under a multitude of restrictions uh, because uh, of of like you know laws that are being implemented in the EU or in the US, and 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 these people are just they they don't have many uh, other resources to actually eat right so so that's a problem to them and we're seeing the same thing a little bit with the with the whaling um especially i think in the faroe islands um because it is a, a, you know an important uh, a part of of a tr- traditional sustenance in the faroe islands i i would add to that you have to give the devil his due and and the, the faroes um, authorities have looked very closely at what is what is it actually we're doing here? How sustainable is it? And they put a lot of resources in figuring out how the whale lives, um, how how many there are, and how do we kill them? How how um, humane is it? And they've developed new methods to comply with the highest standards, international standards of killing any animal. Uh, and um, compare that to something like elk hunting in Sweden. There are many many times more elk shot every year in Sweden or, or deer in, in the UK than there are whales killed in, in the pharaohs. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to think a whale is more intelligent than, say, a pig. Mm-hmm. And nobody uses that for an argument to, to not kill, kill pigs, at least not on the same scale as, as they use for the, for the whale. Oh, no, I think, I think it's just because it's unusual to say somebody like me in, in, in Yorkshire, we never will come across in a whale and a whale is just something that we it's not part of our lives so people don't know any better they'll just see online this hunting of this precious animal but don't understand that it was part of a culture for the Faroe Islands for, for, for centuries and it's part of their their culture still but it's also it's also because like you know we we're saying whale um but a whale is a lot of different things um, and and the, the, you know we, we are we're all familiar with uh, with that environmental disaster that was the late 19th century, early 20th century, where uh, whales were being hunted uh, for um, their oil, right? Um, which was basically used to like fuel lamps in London and stuff like that. And that 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 was that was the, the, the industrial whaling that happened uh, back then. And then you know uh, we developed new uh, uh, methods for for instance turning on lamps in in London, and uh, and we also uh, realized that wait we're we're killing off these uh, these species. And that's how the protection came about, right? And that's that's an entirely different matter than 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 uh, hunting these. Uh, uh, well, I guess in English they're called porpoises, right? Um, Technically, it's a dolphin, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, what we kill, it's it's called yeah. um, the pilot whale, mm. uh, the, the long-finned pilot whale. 
there are uh, any estimates, uh, several hundreds of thousands of them, maybe million, millions um, in, in the in, in this um, well in in the north east and and uh, west Atlantic. Um, they are constantly counting them, making sure you don't drive them to extinction. But they, they their natural habitat is not close to land. It is in the vast ocean, you know, between Norway, Greenland, and, and around there. And th we we don't hunt them on an industrial level. When they happen to come close to land, you decide whether or not to take that precisely that flock or pot of whales. So the, the chance that they would go extinct from hunting in the Faroes is astronomical. The, the last pilot whale has to swim from the North Pole to the Faroes and get killed there. It's simply not going to happen. Mostly they hit land by accident and they strand, strand themselves, typically in, in Australia, but sometimes also in the Faroes and, and uh, sometimes even in Denmark, I believe. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, Nobody really knows why. Not much is known about them. Um, I think Faroese uh, biology, bio, biological scientists are, are the, those who know most about pilot whale in the entire world uh, by putting radars on them, studying their intestines, their teeth, whatever. And um, one thing I wanted to mention, I don't think tradition is, is a good argument. I'm sure there are many traditions that are horrible. Um, if If it's ethically okay to kill whale then who are we to stop anyone from starting tomorrow say they started killing whale in scotland right now are, are they in their rights to do that i if they do it in a sustainable and and uh, ethical manner i suppose they are yes and if if it were a tradition that was just horrible where the animals suffered much more than you could excuse i it wouldn't be okay so I, I'm very careful with the tradition argument because I don't think that really gets at the basic point. I think actually that's a really good point. Um, yeah, tradition is not always uh, <laughs> the best argument out there. Um, absolutely not. Yeah. Fox hunting, bullfighting. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, bullfighting still goes on and it's, it, that's horrible. I, I hate the idea of but bullfighting. If, if you're going to eat it, couldn't you kill it a bit faster? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's something I think that's the fox. That, I think that's the thing exactly. that a lot of people don't realise with bullfighting is that you, you see these clips of them the matadors dancing and, and and I think a lot of people think that's it. They don't realise that they're throwing spears at it and slowly killing it and then slaughtering mm -hmm. it in front of the crowd. I think that kind of gets edited out from these little videos you see. Um I think just in general we've we've become so removed from from the way that we get our food whether it's whale hunting or even just hunting in general you know where people you know, go shoot a deer if somebody posts that online with a you know with the kill so many people will just automatically get upset about it and but in the same breath they might be eating a, a factory farm burger which those animals go through the absolute worst lives of anything i personally think exactly. factory farming I personally think factory farming is the most abhorrent thing humans have ever done. It's it's disgusting. But we're just so used to seeing our meat in this little packet in the supermarket and not seeing where it comes from that when people see a dead animal, they just get upset. The thing about factory farming still is, uh, you know, at least 85% of the people on this planet eat meat, probably more. And... Um, if we only ate wildlife, there isn't 
close to enough wild, mm-hmm. wildlife to support us. Uh, if if you, I, I tried to look at the numbers once. How much big whale is there uh, in Norwegian waters? If they killed the maximum uh, possible number, which is two percent every year, how much meat would go around for every Norwegian? And it's like, you know, two hundred and ten grams a month or something. So uh, th- there's no alternative to to factory farming. Uh, you can you, you can probably make it more humane or I heard something about lab-grown meat or or uh, or absolutely you know similar plant-based uh, meat um, uh, substitute that mm-hmm. that is you know in in all ways even sustainably cl- close to meat uh, that might be the future it's not here yet but until then I think the best we can do is do the um, factory farming as as humane as possible there there really isn't an alternative it, at this point absolutely it is an impossible situation and you know you will get people who say well you could just go vegetarian but even if everybody on the planet went vegetarian you would still need mass deforestation to grow the vegetables the soil like it wouldn't necessarily be any better we're just at a point with the population of the planet that we, we need we, some innovation in, kind of in, fucked. <laughs> uh, yeah. we need some innovation in in, in farming definitely and, and uh, meat farming too yeah very mm-hmm. much agreeing on that one yeah no it, it, I mean, with the whaling, of course, the images are also, you know, part of the, the whole process. Like, if you share one of those images on social media of of a uh, a bunch of Faroese uh, uh, harvesters um, uh, killing the whale, it looks incredibly bloody, right? And then mm-hmm. that will throw anyone off. And, and uh, but you know, if you contrast that with you know the killing floor in a factory, then <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, <laughs> that, that is precisely the point. That is precisely the crux of the issue. In any any animal you would kill to eat it, the, the, at one point there is an angle from which you could take a picture that would outrage most people. Mm-hmm. Oh, without without a doubt. And, and uh, in a factory, they simply won't let you in to take those pictures. Um, uh, whaling happens in, in the open, and it's a free country. You can take pictures of anything you like in the pharaohs. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, in a in a previous that is life, problem. In a previous life, I was a, a plumber and I had to do some plumbing work in a abattoir. And I've never seen anything like it because it, it completely opened my eyes to how how it is. Because it was just a conveyor belt situation of um I think there were sheep that were just hanging one after another, and there was just a they got stunned, and there was a guy there just slitting the throats as they came past, like one every maybe 10 seconds. And I've just never seen anything. It was just never seen anything like it. And it was just that, just that conveyor belt of just one after another after another. And it, that would upset anybody because it's exactly. not nice. No, no. But but what would you expect? People are people have to eat. How do you mm-hmm. want it done? Abs- yeah, absolutely. It's like I said, it's just an impossible situation we find ourselves in that I don't think that there is yeah. a right answer to it. Just no. other than to be. As you in, 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 in innovation, I think uh, has already got got us this far, and I think it's the only thing that's going to get us further on. I mean, there there are plenty of uh, groundbreaking scientific innovations that enables you know the, the way humans live today on this planet, and and it's going to be the one thing that gets us further on. Just abolishing the systems we have without any substitute is is going to create chaos and starvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's that is. Very yeah, true. Ho- hopefully, hopefully it's something with like a lot of humankind or trust it is that we will look back on in 20, 30 years and be like, 
ah, fuck, as if we used to do that. But it's just something, unfortunately, we have to kind of go through now until something comes along. And then we can look back and reflect and be like, yeah, that wasn't the best. Glad we got out of that. Yeah, exactly. But but you can say that for most things. I mean, first, we used to burn wood wood for heat and then coal, you know, bit better but not not good and now mm-hmm. you, you get electric heat and you know spares the environment and you know so on and so forth mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so <laughs> we've got a little bit off topic <laughs> probably got a lot of people hating on us now well we're just trying to solve like the the world's the world. problems <laughs> <laughs> trying to fix the world not, not a small task <laughs> so what's next for Tia? We have an album in the making. Uh, our third album on Metal Blade Records uh, is taking some time. We have quite a few songs already. Um, and there may be, I haven't announced this anywhere yet, there may be a single or two before the next album. Um, just now working on it. Uh, and um, yeah, and you know, waiting for tours to return. I. If I were a very optimistic person, which I sometimes am, I would hope by the end of this year we're touring again. But um, I think there's less than 50% chance of that happening, unfortunately. We had one show, we have one show on the list, and it's in the Faroes in, in Hove uh, at, at a Viking festival on the 29th of May. Looks like that's it for this year, un- unless touring ha- happens in, in the fall which and or the winter, which I'm not Who that knows? hopeful of. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? Could I, be. I, the, the most op- optimistic prognosis for uh, having everybody vaccinated, at least in, in the uh, nor- Northern European area, is, is August, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's likely it'll be postponed again because they, they're just trying to find faults with each other's uh, vaccines. Oh, the two vaccine companies. So, so <laughs> they can sell more. The UK and Europe and, seem uh, to be falling out over the vaccine every every yes. other day. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I think it might be two or three months longer than that, and and then, you know, who knows how long the vaccine lasts? Who knows how long the antibodies last? Um, it's all up in the air. You would like yeah. to think that you know a global pandemic would bring everybody together, and they could forget about Brexit and their differences, and be able to figure out. Uh, a vaccine for this shit situation but apparently not apparently they still want to go at each other and just find any way to try and have one-upmanship on each other yeah 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 no it's a uh, it's a little unfortunate i mean to be fair uh, uh it feels like we're doing kind of good in the u.s at this point um, especially Colorado, um, we, we, I think we're close to like tw- uh, uh, 25% vaccinated mm-hmm. at this point. So, so it's, yeah. uh, it's moving on. The UK has been doing, the UK has been doing really good at actually getting it out to people and getting people vaccinated. I think it's just the supply between an argument between us and the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how have you found recording during all this? Cause are you, did I, did I see that you, are you in Prague? And obviously, your bandmates are elsewhere. Are you able to record remotely? Yeah, uh, we haven't started the recordings yet uh, for the other guys, but it will be possible to do it remotely. Uh, we've we've tried that already. Um, I'm in Prague. I have my home studio here in my in my bedroom, um, but I have you know the, the 
state of the art equipment here. Um, so I, I can record in, in professional quality. I recorded the last tour album like this, and I also recorded my the band I have with my girlfriend, Surma. I re we recorded the, the vocals, the guitar, and, and the bass in, in our home studio. So it, it's doable. I, I have uh, finally it, it, figured out how to use all this equipment. And, and uh, is, is that typically how it's done? This, this, it's a completely different world. For me, that you would record each part separate. Because I guess in my mind, I was like, oh, you all just jump in there and play at the same time and come out with this awesome track. <laughs> Not since Elvis. Uh, well, some, I suppose punk bands do it. And Iron Maiden went back to that way. Unfortunately, you, you can hear the the lower <laughs> level of production uh, since they used the, what's Kevin, whatever, the, the caveman, the Ger German caveman. He could produce a cool punk album i'm sure but iron maiden should should not use that way it's it's, <laughs> it's taken a toll on, on, on their quality no you record you you com compose the music and you record one instrument at a time you okay. could record it all, all at one time but you will need you need a much bigger setup much bigger than i i have here you could do it in a big studio and and then you know go back and and, and write correct details so so what we do is we compose the music i put it in, into notes on a, a midi program MIDI files take up very little space compared to audio files. So we send the, the MIDI uh, notes uh, between each other, me and my bandmates, and you know compose the music like that. Um, once I, I've uh, we've decided on the final song, you know each records his instrument, and uh, we, we send it all together to to the uh, mixer in, in Denmark, Jacob Hansen, who puts it together and, and makes the final sound. Um, so it's it's done. With you know, with with very much, um, how can you, how can you say it? Um, you work at one thing at a time. You work only on vocals until you you get that right. And then you go to the guitar. You work only on that until you get that right, and so on and so forth. But the whole the whole song is is already composed. You know exactly mm -hmm. what to do and when. Uh, there's no, um, yeah, th that's the way it's done. Hmm. It's what what world we live in? Technology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fancy that, whatever next. <laughs> no, it's um yeah, I think it's I think it's impressive. I love learning about things that I just have no idea about. And the the way music is put together is certainly one of them. <laughs> Honestly, I had no idea about this when we started. I, I we always went to a studio and we'd all go there. This was the way we did the first six albums. We would go mm -hmm. to a studio, we'd have the songs more or less finished, some of them one hundred percent finished. Most of them, I would say, fifty to eighty percent finished, and we would finish them in the studio with the the uh, studio engineer, which has, for most of our time, been Jacob Hansen. Um, th then I decided studio is, is simply too hectic. You have you have the whole band there, and most of the time you're just waiting while one mm -hmm. guy is working. And then I have to, you know, the songs are fifty percent finished, some of them, and I have to finish them as soon as possible and i get no sleep for for a month i'm i'm <laughs> making uh, lyrics and music at night and recording by day mm -hmm. uh, after having done that for um about four or five albums i decided that this i will die before i'm 50 if i keep this up so i bought the equipment uh, that uh, i asked jacob the audio engineer what equipment do i need to record this home alone <laughs> and uh, so we've done that for the last uh, for, for the last album, actually, uh, The Hill, which uh, is available in all 
good uh, music stores. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and uh, for the uh, album I did with my uh, girlfriend uh, for the band Surma. And we're going to do this. We're going to keep this up. It's, it's very hard. There's no pressure as, as it was before when we were in studio. It's very expensive to be in a studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're at home, you're sort of, at, you're, you're left to your own um, uh, motivation, which is not always <laughs> as good <laughs> as seeing the ticker in the studio counting, counting <laughs> the euros up. Yeah, I, I imagine that makes a difference. Yeah, it does. It's good to uh, save the money if you can, though, I guess. And I think just be... Not be rushed. Yeah, exactly. Not be rushed. And the worst feeling is you leave the studio and then you get a great idea what you should have done with the song. <laughs> but you right, didn't have yeah. time to think it through properly. <laughs> what, what we do now is properly thought through and, and uh, I think uh, much higher quality music, at least much higher composition. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, Matej, have you got anything else you want to... <laughs> no. Well, no. So I, I mean, uh, it, I I just want to thank you for for joining us and uh, talking with us about all of these uh, um, really interesting uh, subjects. And I'm looking forward to uh, uh, seeing that next uh, album of yours uh, coming out. And I'm thank you. Well, out thanks for doing well. this. It was a very good interview, and and uh, I'm glad you had me on. Yeah, absolutely. And no, it was. I I apologize for my ignorance when it comes to the Faroe Islands as well. <laughs> ah, no worries, no worries. <laughs> but it was it was good to learn. I feel like I I learned a lot today, which is a good day in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you for taking the time. Like, yeah, I'm I'm thoroughly going to enjoy going through your back catalogue and listening to everything. And hopefully, you will be in the UK soon when things allow. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. We'll definitely have to get a beer when you get uh, to uh, Colorado next time. <laughs> no beer for me. Well, only we can only whiskey made or whiskey made or or vodka gin something. No, I Fair tried enough. beer many times. Never could hold the stuff down. <laughs> Comes well, right up again. <laughs> whiskey. I know whiskey a great whiskey bar. So, <laughs> well, yeah, whiskey is definitely a good choice. Yeah, it thank is. you. Have you so? Is there anything you want to plug, shout out, I guess, let people know where they can get things or follow um, you? We have a podcast we're trying to get off the ground. It's called The Tiercast. You can find it at youtube.com slash tierband. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we have a website called uh, at tier.fo. If people are interested, that's where they can uh, snoop around. Perfect. I think most people listening to this will already heard of you guys and be be fans as well um Matthias, what about you where people find you well you can always follow me on instagram by my name Matthias nordvik um and uh yeah i post pictures of myself and my world once in a while <laughs> <laughs> and uh write controversial blogs every now and then that also happened from time to time <laughs> Okay, so I will give all the other details. <laughs> so if you if you enjoy the show, please take a moment to leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. It really helps us get discovered by other people and new listeners. Obviously, if you want to support us any deeper, then you can follow us on Patreon where you can watch episodes live and you also get access to our extra bonus episode once a week where me and Matthias sit down and watch an episode of Vikings and let you know our thoughts, let you know what's real, what's not real. Or well, at least Matthias gives you the 
the facts. I just laugh at people's bald caps. <laughs> you can follow us on Facebook at Nordic Mythology Podcast. Same on Instagram. And obviously you've got our website, nordicmythologypodcast.com, where you can buy our T-shirts. And I'm going to give a shameless plug to my company, Horns of Odin. We released our spring range. Recently we've got some nice 100% cotton sweat sweaters on there. So you can go and check that out and you can get a discount with the code HORNS10. So there we go. <laughs> little shameless plug. Um, yeah, Harry, thank you very much. Um, this is fun. Like I say, I feel like I learned a lot and that means it's a good episode for me. And hopefully, hopefully that means it's a good episode for everybody else as well. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.